Welcome to the Mike on Much podcast. I am your host, Mike Vierman, and we have our producer with us, Max Kerman. Hello, hello. And for the second week in a row, we're doing a three-man pod, but it is not Shane. I know that's what you're thinking. We have an all-new guest, someone that's never been on before, uh, the creative director of Much Music and my close personal friend, Randall Graham. Hello. I like Randall is perched up. Why are you sitting higher than uh, the rest of us? I'm a- actually trying to avoid any cat hair because I'm definitely allergic to cats. Uh, He's risking so his life to be on the I podcast am, yeah. right now. <laughs> so wow. if I start to sneeze later on or, or cough. Or, or going to cardiac or arrest. if I fall down yeah. Yeah, and can't breathe, <laughs> you'll this, know This why. will be the last piece of creative work you ever did. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be good to go out on a high note. Huh? Hey, I heard you have a standing desk in your office. Is that true? I do have the standing desk. When did you make the move? Uh, about uh, six months ago. It's fantastic. Yeah. I, I shake my hips a lot. You know, the White House is buying like uh, standing desks for all the employees in the White House. Really? Do you think uh, Brack has a standing desk? Well, he looks like he's so hot and in shape. That would be a very modern move for the like the Oval Office to have a standing desk. They I, couldn't. No, I think that's, well, maybe not the Oval Office. Right. But everybody else who works there. Huh. How, like, I'm like weirdly, not, this is not weird. I'm very attracted to Barack Obama. It, don't, don't you find In what sense? Like, maybe not sexually. <laughs> I like that we're learning new things already in this episode. Yeah, just like I just find you know when you see another man, you're just like constantly just sort of in awe of how Absolutely. how gorgeous they can be. Well, sure, ar- arguably he's one of the most powerful men on the planet. So yeah, so that probably power is sexy, and, and he's very charming. He's like an amazing speaker. Actually, you know, sometimes I think about meeting Obama. Like, <laughs> who, I know we're about to get to Chris Hadfield, uh, but who uh, who are like your top three guys? That you or women that you if you would be so excited to meet, you know, sit down with and chat. Sit down and chat. Yeah. How about we all pick one? Okay. Well, Max, why don't you start? Would it be? I think it would be Obama. I I honestly think I might start crying. Like it's. I'm not even exaggerating. If I were to meet Obama, I think I might start crying. Like as if he's like the Beatles or something like that. Like I'm a 15 year old girl in 1963 or something. It'd just be great to sit down with him and pick his brain. Oh my god. Um, Me, uh, I, I mean. We heard a couple episodes ago that I went and saw Paul McCartney. Oh, yeah. Just because I've sort of loved the Beatles so much. And I feel so vapid picking an entertainer when you've picked... Oh, Obama's kind of an entertainer, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true as well. Uh, so it'd probably be Paul. I'd want to, you know, chat with him oh, about really? the early days. I'd love to sit down for half an hour and just talk with him about a, a wide sort of variety of things. I'd pick Paul. Paul, okay. Randall? Uh I gotta go with Chris Hadfield. <laughs> <laughs> Commander Hadfield. Commander. Absolutely. Commander Chris Hadfield. Yeah, he's arguably like the coolest person on the planet in my mind he's fantastic see i was never as a kid that into like the space program or astronauts or anything like that so what makes hatfield stand out to you hold on just for a second just to put things into perspective um so we find out we've got this we're going to sit down with chris hatfield commander hatfield as randall calls him (laughs) and um randall's correcting everybody all day long (laughs) (laughs) show some respect commander hatfield to you so that's true (laughs) so uh so max wasn't going to be there and shane will sometimes sit in on these things and when i told randall i was doing the thing he was like you're doing an astronaut he's like what astronaut i'm like well, Chris Hadfield, it's Commander Hadfield. He goes, no f- way. And I go, I go, yeah. He's like, do you mind if I sit in? And I was like, yeah, for sure. I didn't know that. Like, blah blah. So anyway, with that in mind, you find out uh, we're going to be talking to Chris Hadfield. Max isn't going to be there, so you have an opportunity to be full Max. Uh, yeah, I'm out of my mind. Excited. I think it goes to a little bit of what you were saying earlier about like never growing up wanting to be an astronaut, but I think like. The like what this guy has accomplished 
is like absolutely mind-boggling. Like when I was a kid, I remember one time I wanted to be like a garbage man because I was like, <laughs> you know what? Like, oh, you work for like two hours in the morning and you might find some really cool stuff on the side, <laughs> on the sidewalk, right? I had, no, I had no idea that you work all day and, it, you know, it's, it's a lot of work, obviously. So I wanted to be a garbage man. I could not be a garbage man. This guy was like, uh, you know what? I want to be a space astronaut. I want to go to outer space. There's no like outer space program in Canada. There is no like yeah, nothing in, like in that. He's like, when he's growing he's up like, um, I think I'm going to go to space. He actually did it. I was like a garbage man. No, a firefighter. No, a rock star. No, like anything that I wanted to be a kid. No way I did it. He actually did it. He actually did it. And he did like the highest thing that you could do. Like, I can't think of anything bigger. And maybe he's getting maybe Barack from, Obama. Maybe. No, no, I mean, astronaut is definitely that skill set uh, where you have to sort of combine like this intense knowledge in science. You also have to be like really like sort of physically fit. He's mentally, also, mentally sort of yeah. disciplined and prepared. And we talk about all of that in the interview, actually. Yeah, yeah. he is so fit. It was like... I, when I shook his hand, I was like, man, it felt like concrete. Like he is like the ultimate physical specimen, just like <laughs> muscle and sinew and bone. Like you just know fierce. he's so much more mentally strong than any of us too. Oh, absolutely. Uh-huh. And so well-spoken and that, and that mustache is so amazing. Like, like that mustache has been in space. Yeah. Outer he, space. And not only all of that, he's gotten shout outs from David Bowie, you know? Yes. So, Getting to the actual sort of interview, we go down there. They're like, uh, we're, we're going to do it in a green room. So he's on what the Marilyn Dennis show or something yeah. like that. So I'm like, all right, Randall, it's time to roll. He's like, okay, let's do this. He's yeah. ready to produce. He's got his like producing hat on. Takes it very <laughs> yeah, seriously. I've got, a, I've got my notebook. I'm full. I'm full maxing the shit out of this interview. <laughs> he brought a notebook. That's that's more organized than I am. Yeah. Everyone, any producer that steps in for me does a better job <laughs> immediately. <laughs> so we go down uh, and immediately we're kind of standing. I'm like, I thought we were meeting in the green room. I don't know. And then we see, oh, he's just coming out of Maryland now. So they bring him up, like whatever the people. And I'm like, uh, I'm like, hi, I'm Mike, you know, and then Randall steps in. He's like, Commander Hadfield. <laughs> and I go, shit, why didn't I think of that? To call him Commander Hadfield. It was so smart and it was awesome. And like, you could tell Commander Hadfield like respected and gave Randall the shake and he did have a very firm shake. Oh yeah. It was uh, ridiculous. Yeah. And did so, you, sorry, did you call, you just said, hi, I'm Mike. You didn't say, you, just, you didn't say, hey, well, no, they, they introduced his, his person, his guy introduced him as Chris. He's like, this is Chris. Yes. And then you're like, oh, the, I'm uh, Mike. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, Commander Hadfield. Yeah. Like I was just like, Pff, and he was like, this guy knows. This yeah. guy. This guy is full maxing the shit out of this interview. <laughs> I would have not said commander. No, I would have given him a nickname like already. Yeah, yeah. Chrissy boy. Chrissy boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> That's what I would have said. So we get into uh, the green room and we jump into it. And he was a fascinating guy and he was super articulate. And I was wondering if you were going to jump in because I said to Randall before, I'm like, hey, if there's anything you want to jump in on, like feel free. Max certainly doesn't hold back. No, actually, you didn't say that. Oh, so did I? I didn't, no, you didn't. You didn't, but I'd heard you have done it in the past. Uh And I was like, oh, I don't know what, like, I don't know what kind of pacing you have with your questions or if like, what if I like jump in with a question that you've, you have planned a a little bit later and I mess it up or I don't deliver it as good. So I was like, I was desperately trying to like, just keep my lips tight. Uh I was just there to like kind of bask in the glory of. Of me, of, I get of, it, of and Chris as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, uh, but uh, 
It was great. And then you did end up jumping in when we were talking about life on other planets, just to tease the interview a little bit. And Absolutely. I believe you asked... It was about, uh, it, it was about water on, on Mars yes. and what the implications of touching that water would be oh, by was, humans. Yes. And then he got into a whole thing about how a big fear for NASA is contaminating the water you find. So you exactly. go, oh, we found life. There's bacteria. But then you realize we brought the bacteria there. So it's actually just life on Earth. Oh, I see. Yeah, it's very trippy. Like... Uh, you gotta think through that so far in advance because, like, there's no protocols for this. those are there's things no, I would not think of. If I yeah, think. absolutely. But, sweet water and I'll go for a <laughs> yeah. bath. I'm gonna take a piss over here. You guys cool? <laughs> fortunately, NASA. <laughs> fortunately, NASA has like probably a bajillion people trying to figure that out. Yes. Damn. I love so, space. So one of the things in preparing for this interview is I happen to be friends with. Uh, a local music producer named Robbie Lackritz who worked on the Chris Hatfield record. And I, I saw Robbie six months ago and he said, oh, I'm in the middle of this astronaut record. And he was telling me how it was made. So I called him for a little bit of background research in preparing these questions. And I and I had one of the questions I had, I was like, what, uh, why does he do any of this stuff? It's like he's had this storied career. Like what compels him to go out and like put out a record and come to 299 Queen Street West and meet people. Be a pop culture figure. Yeah, right. be a pop culture figure. Like do all because a lot of astronauts do not do what he's doing. And he said, you know, I I'm just sort of projecting here. But and but Ryan's like, you know, he just wants to bring positivity to the world. I was like, positivity like about the space program. Like what? He's like, no, no. He just wants to be a positive role model. For people, it's true. And, and it was. Did you? I guess my question for you guys: Did you get that vibe? Oh, absolutely. Like I was just gonna jump in and say, it like it almost emanated from him. Like it was like you were kind of just mystified. I I I was amazed at how well you were able to like stay on topic and like ask questions because I was just like kind of <laughs> mouth agape, just like in Wonderland listening to him. Like it, he's the most fascinating person. Like he's unbelievably cool. He does all those things. Like, yeah, it's unbelievable. He's a very rare skill set. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as far as an interview, he was no Scott Weiland, but he was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, you know, he held his own. Well, actually, I'm going to tell a personal anecdote. Uh, and maybe, Randy, you can jump in on this. So after the interview, I couldn't be there. We were recording. Mike calls me and he's like, oh, the interview went really great. Chris gave like 35, 40 minutes of his time. Super generous. At the end of the interview, he said, you know, I do a lot of his interviews and some of them are pretty procedural. But sometimes, and very, this only happens very occasionally, you learn something about yourself that you didn't even know as you're having the conversation. And it's only happened a few times, once with Terry Gross, who, as we all know and love, is sort of like the premier interviewer on NPR. Once with somebody who works for like ABC Television. Yeah, who was that? Do you remember who it was? I can't remember. Uh, yeah. Anyway, looked at Mike and he said, and you got it. Yeah. And and when and I was like, oh, what? That's the <laughs> ultimate compliment. How how did you feel to, to for him to tell you that? I I was it was I was I was I swear I was like I didn't know how I was like I was humbled. <laughs> it was insane. And then Randall jumped in immediately, and he goes, "Were you rolling on that?" Yeah, <laughs> it, it was so brutal. Yeah, basically, Commander Hatfield just said that Mike is like one of the best interviewers <laughs> on the planet, and. <laughs> On this planet. He, yeah. <laughs> yeah, on this planet, or probably all the planets that he's been to. Trashy tabloid shit on Mars. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you guys are building this up too much. Now we're gonna get to the interview. People are like, well, not good. No, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. no. I would never say this about himself, but it's, uh, it's a great compliment. Yeah, yeah we, it was the best compliment. And in, in good journalism here, and Mike Mike's uh, doing that just that. Really, I should have been 
on the record button. That was probably my critical error a in producer. full maxing. Yeah. No, you you were concerned about getting the punch photo, and you did. That's true. I got a punch <laughs> photo. I love those punch photos. Can you explain your punch photos? Yes. Uh, so, obviously, we can't ask for photos for everybody that comes in the building. Uh, you know, it's a level of professionalism. But on the odd time when I'm shooting with somebody, a celebrity, for example, or if I happen to run into them out in the street, um, obviously, my wife facilitates a lot of that for context uh randall's wife is danielle graham uh the host of the nation's number one entertainment show e-talk e-talk watch it lovely lady it's fantastic fantastic um so anytime i am fortunate enough to uh be with a celebrity and ask for a photo, I ask for a punch photo. Uh, and it basically looks like this celebrity is, has, has punched me out <laughs> and it kind of actually started actually from unbreakable, the movie with uh, Bruce Willis oh, yeah. and, and Samuel Night L. Shyamalan. Jackson. Yeah. 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 And it was Samuel L. Jackson as this comic book store owner. And he like was really into the art of comic books, like the fine art of it. And he was describing how, stylistically when they do action in comic books, you never actually see a fist actually contacting somebody's face in a comic book. You always see the fist through the punch Ah, and the expression of the person being punched. And I was like, Whoa, that's so cool. I want to, I wonder if I could do that with a photo. And I tried one and I was like, this is hilarious. (laughs) So then I started doing them and I've got, maybe 50 or 60 of them now. Yeah. It totally works as a still. It's like he started his own thing. And then I'll see sometimes on Instagram, people like imitate it now. Yeah, really? You're the the forefather of that. I think so. Like I've, I've definitely searched like Instagram. I, any hashtag punch photos, I'm like, the originator, I think. Damn. Uh, your Facebook profile pic for a long time was Shia LaBeouf punching you Absolutely. at a gallery. Is it going to be replaced by Commander Hatfield? Uh, yeah, probably. I got to get on that. I haven't been on Facebook for a while, but yeah, yeah that's I'm going to have to update that. Eventually, I, I think I want to make a coffee table book or I'm going to make uh, a blog. I think I've been kicking around the, uh, the punch photo diaries. Ooh, I like that. And you got to blow up that uh, Commander Hatfield one. Absolutely. It. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. It's out of this world. <laughs> As they Actually say. erased that. That was horrible. <laughs> no, we're keeping, no, we're keeping that. it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get to Chris Hadfield. Commander Chris Hadfield. Just gonna throw this here. Great. That's a fancy one. Yeah, she's not that fancy. There's fancier. But uh, fancy enough. I tried one like that to try and do the album recording on orbit, but it just ended up with a better rig, just using um GarageBand with a click track. I was going to ask you, so did you send them doing GarageBand like on a laptop? On an iPad. iPad? Yeah, but I had a preamp. I used a Sennheiser mic and a preamp plugged into the iPad with GarageBand running, and that way I could do you know, multiple track recording and work it all right. Did you find it difficult to record out there? I taught myself how to do it up there. Yeah. Really? So you didn't know before you left? Not really. No, I'd never done it, so I figured it out. Yeah. I, I tried, I mean, I tried one of these. There was, there was one of those on board, and there was... Video cameras. I didn't know what was going to work best, but uh, it was kind of neat because I could, uh, uh, with the GarageBand running, I could just float the microphone uh, in front of the guitar, <laughs> put the guitar track down to a click track, and then just float it up a little higher, just sort of temp stowed with a piece of Velcro up closer to my mouth. And but the whole idea of having to get it to a click track was the real decider that made me use a GarageBand. But it worked out great. Well, because then you brought all those tracks back down to make the record, right? So yeah, well, I, I never intended to make a record. It's just kind of funny. It's like you know, I, I was on in this bizarre place and playing guitar just like I do on Earth and writing songs with my brother and by myself just like I do on Earth. 
and, and my only thought was, well, if I'm going to record it, I may as well at least try and get it of a decent enough quality that maybe someday we can do it. But they're pretty simple recordings, just voice and guitar. And didn't do anything with it for a couple of years, you know, just thinking, you know, I've got a lot of stuff going on. But then thought, we've got these recordings, should do something with them, you know. Right. And and so uh, went into studio with Robbie Lackritz, who's just terrific. He does Feist and a bunch of other bands. And, and he uh, had some tremendous, brought in some great studio musicians. I saw you had like this sort of tasty group of Toronto musicians. Oh, really? All coming yeah. in so we didn't, we didn't touch my voice or my guitar. Those, those just, you know, that's the whole idea is this is, this is what I recorded on Orbit. But then we just added the instrumentals in to, to fill the music, like we did with Oddity, same thing. Yeah. And, uh, and it just, it, it's the music that, that I always hear when I'm playing music, but, you know, it just hasn't got there yet. And, and, and he really he did a beautiful job. I'm really, really delighted. Uh, to listen to it now, it it, uh, it takes me right back to uh, to where I was recording and what I was thinking about. Going back a bit, you grew up in southern Ontario. Yeah. What did uh, what your childhood look like? Uh, I was born in Sarnia, and uh, and then my folks moved to a farm when I was about eight or seven or eight, and so I grew up on a, a corn farm. Uh, my mom's a, a piano player and a musician. My dad's a farmer and a pilot. Wow. Yeah, he's in Air Canada. It's almost a perfect blend. Of, uh, <laughs> yeah, blend of all that stuff: machinery and aviation and uh, and music. Uh, and uh, two brothers, two sisters, so five of us. I'm second of five. And our, my parents' uh, strict set of values, but a real expectation that you uh, you will find out the answer to things. You know, if you're curious about something. You won't just, you know, wander around not knowing. If if you're curious, figure it out, learn that thing, and then move on to the next thing. Solve the problem. And uh, yeah, solve the problem. And and my dad also instituted a policy where he said, if you ever win a scholarship to anything, I will give you that same amount. So it's it'll double, good incentive. Du- double the value of any scholarship you ever got, which I thought was that's yeah, a nice incentive as well. And, um, and and. When I decided to be an astronaut, you know, I couldn't even tell anybody because it's like at the time we didn't have an astronaut program. You know? <laughs> yeah, it seems like <laughs> we didn't even have a space agency back then. But uh, they just saw it as as probably a good long term draw to help me make decisions in life, and they never really thought it was going to happen. I, really, neither did I. But I kept pursuing it, and amazingly enough, the you know the dominoes all fell in the right spot, or and. And the timing worked out so that in, in 1992, when Canada did have an astronaut recruitment, uh, I had the qualifications to get, get hired. So even though you couldn't sort of see the steps to becoming like the end goal of an astronaut, you just sort of, I mean, you plowed forward. Like, I mean, there was no path, it seems like, that you could follow that had been pre There was no Canadian role model. When I was a teenager or going through university, it was like, I, I, you know, how do you become a Canadian astronaut? So I, I just thought, well, you fly in space. Okay, that's a verb. I'll learn to fly. And right. so I joined Air Cadets, learned to fly gliders even before I had my driver's license and then powered airplanes and then, you know, keep my body in shape because astronauts are in shape and, <laughs> and, um, and then go to university. And since I was, yeah, I thought I'm never going to be an astronaut. So, but let's do stuff that, that kind of shepherds my life along in that direction and see what happens. And so I went to university and studied engineering. I joined the Air Force, became a pilot. And then I became a fighter pilot, and I flew CF-18s, uh, intercepting Soviet bombers off the coast of Canada during the Cold War. Did that eight different times. And then, uh, but I really wanted to combine the two of those. I wanted to go to test pilot school. You know, as a kid growing up on a farm, machinery and airplanes, to me, how they work and why and how to make them work better, 
was as interesting as anything. And so uh, I got selected to go to test pilot school. And Canada only sends one or two people a year for the whole country to test pilot school. And uh, that was a hard, fascinating year. But now I've flown uh, nearly 100 different types of airplanes. And all of that, when, when Canada in 1992 said, you know, wanted astronauts in WANTADs, uh, I could stick my hand up pretty high. And, and was luckily, those qualifications ended up being something that... Uh, that uh, got me to the front of the pack enough to get selected and trusted to fly in space. Before you went on that path, when did music sort of enter your life? Sort of learning guitar? Yeah, so my brother Dave and I were standing at an auction sale because uh, on a farm you go to auction sales to you know to get used equipment. And we're standing there at an auction sale and there's normally all of the implements, but then there's some of the household goods. And my brother Dave and I was like nine or 10, so he's a couple years old, my older brother. And the auctioneer held up a guitar and said, who would like to bid on this guitar? It was like, we'd like to bid on that guitar. And uh, and it was a terrible guitar. It cost us $5. And it was and worth one for the two of you. Yeah, one guitar for the two of you. Know, we were just living on allowance at the time. And uh, so we bought that guitar. And it's it very tough action, hard to push the fingers down. But we taught ourselves to play guitar using you know the Mel Bay method and, and uh, listening to John Denver and simple stuff at first. But we taught ourselves to play on that guitar. Before you, you know, went to the aviation route, was there a moment where you were like, I kind of want to start a band and give this a go? <laughs> no, not at all. I, 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 uh, music to me is a wonderful way to explain life to yourself. Hmm. Like, if you're trying to figure out what's... I had a really complicated day, so uh, I sit down and play guitar for 20 minutes before I go to bed. It helps, helps me sort of start to catalog and, and sort out what today meant to me. And... And it was never my intent to be a professional musician, but I, I fronted bands for the last 25 years, a bunch of different bands, and I've played in bars and clubs and played on Good Morning America and played, you know, yeah. over a Festival Inter-Celtique in Lorient, France, and all over the place. Um, but always just a, a, as a delightful part of life. And, uh, and so I've been extremely lucky to play that amount of music uh, in addition to the other things I was doing. Well, I mean, being an astronaut, it seems you can spend a lot of time in isolation. You know yeah. what I mean? Obviously. Yeah, and, away uh, from home, too. Most people with your you know, background aren't you know, doing the rounds, talking at 299 Queen Street West, sort <laughs> of, uh, you know, from your TED Talks to yeah. releasing an album. I mean, what do you, like, where do you think your desire to be a public person comes from in relation to sort of your career? Well, I see uh, the role of an astronaut as coming with an enormous public trust public expectation. I was literally there on behalf of millions of people. And I think if you don't see it that way, then then you haven't fully embraced what, what your responsibilities are. To me, that's really important. I was allowed to go do something that cost Canada a bunch of money mm -hmm. that can have a, a significant influence, not just financial and not just scientific and exploration, but also... Um, Aspirational, inspirational, Absolutely. has yeah. a big influence, and 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 it doesn't suddenly stop uh, when the wheels stop on the space shuttle or, or when you retire. To me, I think it's important, and and so I, I teach at university, I teach at Waterloo, but I do a thing called on the lunch pad, just using Skype, where I tie in and do Q and A with with elementary schools across the country. I do that through. I think I'm booked for the next two school years because right. there's just one of me but the demand is huge but I would have loved when I was you know nine years old to have talked to an astronaut by Skype from my yeah. classroom I mean 
to try and actually find out what what it's really like. And and I remember writing letters as a teenager to um, to test pilots and to astronauts, going basically, what's it really like? What you know, am I doing the right thing? What what should I be doing next? There was just there was no go-to way to find out. And so I see my role very much as the other side of that of that coin right now. And I mean, I'm on the, the space advisory board for the country too. I'm trying to help shape space policy from a governmental level, but but I think the the sharing of the whole wonder of it and the opportunity of it and where we're going and exploring the universe and what that means uh, at, a, at an individual level, especially for young Canadians, I think it's really important. Do you remember the first time you heard you were going into outer space? It's becoming an astronaut is is uh, an agonizing process because it's probably never going to happen and yet it still takes all of your energy so how do you I mean it's like I, I guess it's like being an Olympic athlete like so know? for everyone that's trying everyone that's in the program how many get to actually go up yeah I, I mean uh, I, I there are thousands and thousands of thousands of people who want to be an astronaut and, and Canada's only had eight ever only in the history of humanity however many 10 billion of us that have ever lived there have been about 520 actually leave Earth so the numbers are incredibly tiny and uh, and the process you know you, you put your heart and soul I did a master's degree and learned to speak uh, other languages and all these things thinking someday maybe this is a good skill to have but it someday may help that and then you, you respond to the one ad and there's this there's 5,000 people apply and then they whittle it down layer by layer and it lasts months. It was, it, I felt like I had permanent heartburn. I thought I was going to get an ulcer just from the, the agonized, helpless waiting of trying to see how this process that I had bet kind of all of my professional life on, which I now could not affect apart from just uh, waiting, of course. was going to turn out. And, and so when the finally came down to that Saturday where the space agency was going to phone us, the final 20 out of the, the 5,300, they were going to phone us and tell us yes or no. And they were going to start calling at 1 o'clock. So pretty big day in my life. Did you sleep the night before? Yeah, well, I was th thinking, you know, what do I do before 1 o'clock? So I, I went <laughs> water skiing with some friends. I thought I may as well get some physical exercise in and relax. So went out that morning thinking, well, today's a big day in my life. Um, sitting in the kitchen. What was really interesting was my neighbor came over just to be there as part of the experience. He'd always wanted to be an astronaut. He worked for Greenpeace. He always wanted to be an astronaut. And he just wanted to be in the kitchen at that moment. And my wife, the kids were still little and uh, the phone rang just a few minutes after one o'clock so I thought that's probably a good sign because they'll probably phone the people they want first sure. and and uh, and it was you know the Canadian Space Agency saying do you want to be an astronaut and, and uh, there's still no guarantee you're gonna fly in space but that is the big watershed moment that's that's like climbing uh, across the prairies and up the Rockies and suddenly you know it's a, you can, it's a reality you, you it's can see real. the Pacific this is real um, I mean, even with all the training and simulations, when you're sort of in the, the ship and you're going into space, are there real moments of fear? Even after everything you've done? Uh, nobody wants a fearful astronaut. We, sure. we try and not be a scared astronaut. And I mean, it, you don't want one. Because if you're afraid, basically that means you weren't ready, is what afraid is. Afraid is things are happening that you don't know what you're supposed to do that's why you have fear it is because you're now just re relying on instinct to react to something and there's nothing in our instinct that 
teaches us how to fly spaceships. Like it's, your instincts don't do the right thing. So what you do as an astronaut is you spend decades of your life changing what your instincts are. The mental training. Well, and, and, and the technical training, both. Uh, the, the space shuttle is the most complicated flying machine ever built. And you have, to, and, and it's not completely understood. We only flew it 135 times total. Yeah, that's I mean, terrifying. If you get into a, a triple seven, it's flown thousands of times before it ever gets a passenger on board. And yet, every single flight of the shuttle, we, we had to try and do everything perfectly, and the vehicle had to behave itself. So, you would not believe the amount of preparation we do for a flight. It, everything pales. I mean, I was a fighter pilot, test pilot, engineer. I used to be a downhill ski racer. I understand preparation, but everything is just dwarfed by the amount that uh, NASA, the other space agencies, and astronauts prepare for spaceflight so that they're not afraid. And it's not that they're brave or deluding themselves. It's just that it's preparation. Uh, they know what to expect, and that takes away the fear. You're, you're prepared, and, the, and, and without it, we couldn't do what we do. And you just have to sort of have a faith in the machinery you you have to, well no you have to accept the risk way way early that this is a dangerous thing to do you can't just sort of cross your fingers and hope things are going to go okay it's pointless because that'll just make you all nervous and tensed up and you won't do a good job you have to have said years prior i am going to bet my life on this thing i'm going to do a risky thing i'm i think it's worth it i think exploring the rest of the universe in person is worth taking a risk so you have to have internalized that and got comfortable with it way in advance so that now you can say, okay, I'm going to take this risk. Got it. Now I need to do everything I possibly can right up until the moment the engine's light to be uh, poised as, and as ready as any human being can be to deal with the things that are going to go wrong, so to truly understand it so that, so that you're not just ready, but you, you are as hyper-aware and, and prepared as, a, as any group of humans could be to get into that ship. So you're not hoping and you're not, you're not wishing and you're not crossing your fingers or rubbing your rabbit's foot. Sure. You are, you are focusing on, okay, what's the next thing that's gonna kill us? What's it gonna look like? How are we gonna react to it? What are the lights gonna look? There are a thousand things can go wrong any second. What does each one of them look like? What do each of us have to do so that we can optimize our chances of making it through that window to get to the next one? And, and that's where the focus is. And so you're not afraid sitting in the ship. You are, you are intensely ready for the sequence of events and your part in them. Because you've sort of done the calculations in your head. You've and we've, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, we've simulated it too. We, we try and build the best simulators possible so that, so that it's as familiar as can be. Our simulator shakes and rattles and has the noises and the explosions and the, the sky goes from light blue to dark blue to black as you climb mm. up. And it's not, all, all simulators are wrong. All simulators have flaws, but you, you try and, and make it as realistic as you can. So when you get in the real spaceship, it's not exactly the same. But it, it feels sort of familiar. It feels within the scope of what you're prepared for. With the weight of sort of, you know, an undertaking such as going to space, I mean, do you have a faith or a set of beliefs that guides you sort of outside of the preparation? I think every astronaut does. Uh, it, it, all different faiths, naturally. You know, we have astronauts from all around the world. We've, uh, Malaysia and mm -hmm. all across Russia and India and, and uh, North America and Europe. So all different faiths. But you don't get to be an astronaut by being sort of uh, indecisive and wishy-washy about stuff. You need something that has given you a strength of conviction. And all astronauts have a strength of conviction. We really respect each other's. 
and I, I don't normally get into my own faith because when you start talking about your own, then it, it's like you're imposing your particular strengths and expecting other people to have the same as you, which I don't think is a, is, is a useful discussion. I think the important thing is to have internalized some set of values or some set of beliefs so that um, it does give you calm and strength and a confidence in yourself. In maybe those darkest moments. In the dark moments or, or in the time where it's really hard to see where this is going or why you're doing these things or when, when the uh, demands are right at the edge of your capability. Are there many bad days in space when you're up there? I didn't have one bad day no. in space. I flew in space three times, uh, twice on the American Space Shuttle and then once on the Russian Soyuz. I helped build the Russian space station Mir. I helped build the International Station and I lived up there for five months. And so think of the amount of time I trained with those crews, years and years and years of my life with, the, with my crewmates. And never once in those decades of training, nor uh, in our time and space, did we ever have an emotional argument, ever. We had heated discussions about why we were doing things and about the right procedures and how things should be done and what the priorities were, but everybody recognized that what we were doing was more important than our particular transient emotions. And so people behaved like adults. They behaved uh, the way that you would hope uh, a professional group of astronauts would. Now it's part selection, but then most of it is just uh, recognizing that you are there not for yourself. You're there on behalf of a lot of other people, and so uh, behave accordingly. You don't get a lot of selfish people up there, sort of. You sure don't want one. No. You, you, don't, want, you don't want anybody on a space station with you who needs other people's adulation or input to feel good about themselves. Everybody should have a sense of calm and reserve and confidence. And then as the commander of the ship, one of my guidelines was, I want every single person in the crew to do one thing nice for somebody else unasked every day. Just think about it. If you got a minute, go do something. Give, bring somebody some macadamia nuts. Or go over and say, hey, can I help you for a minute? Or you know, just, just do one unexpected nice thing for every other member of the crew every day. Because it just sets a tone, right? Then you, you, you really... But people were naturally doing that anyway. But it reminds them that... Um, that if any one of us is having a bad day, then, then everybody's going to. And how are we going to react when something really bad happens? How are we going to support each other? One of the crew members, uh, his mom died while we were on the space mm. station. Um, but in truth, been. we had simulated that in advance. I got the crew and I said, hey, we're all in our 40s and 50s. There's a pretty good shot while we're away uh, from Earth that one of us is going to at least have a family member get sick, if not die. Just look at the odds. So let's not wait with our fingers crossed for it to happen. Let's talk about it. You know, how are we going to deal with that? If someone's family member dies, you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to have time by yourself? Do you want more work? How are we going to support each other? Let's talk about it. Let's simulate it once. Let's think our way through it. So when Mission Control called up and said, hey, we want to have a private medical conference with Tom, I heard that call and I knew exactly why. And Tom went off and took the call himself, but we thought about it. I went over a minute later, of course, Tom was all broken up about it, but how to support him, how to be a good crew member, how to get him to work through it. Um, fortunately, one of the astronauts that had just come back to Earth was able to go to the funeral in his place and, and be there to stand in for him. made a huge difference to, the, to his grieving process. It's not like the grieving happened any differently, but it allowed us as a crew to... to uh, 
to be much more supportive than we would have otherwise. I'm prepared because you had the discussion. Well, yeah, I, I think a lot of people go through life um, with their fingers crossed, hoping bad things won't happen, when they know inevitably that bad things do happen. That's what life is. Sure. So, well, they kind of avoid talking about it I know, because then they have to think about that it. That just that just builds a permanent knot in your stomach of, of stress and dread. And to me, it's just kind of a, why do that to yourself? Why, why live with the anxiety? Yeah, why go through life that way? Especially for things that you can deal with. You know, why why just stick your head in the sand and, and hope when, when you can uh, maybe just do something quickly when there's no stress, deal with it, and then you got that one taken care of. Then you can move on to the next one. And if you get enough of them taken care of, then you'll find yourself walking through the park going, this is a beautiful day and, and my heart's where it ought to be. Is it difficult for you to watch space movies or movies about astronauts and be like, that's ridiculous? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm too expert in those fields. The, the science fantasies don't bother me at all. Like, uh, it doesn't bother me to watch uh, X-Men. Right? Gotcha, but like but, Apollo but 13. I know, X-Men, but why, why should I watch gravity and get upset whereas x-men doesn't upset me um you know they're both just science fantasy the the ones that use real things in the movie like like gravity sure. where it, it's it's actually sort of documentary like right there's the space shuttle and the space station and mir and the chinese space station and the soyuz those things exist for real so to some degree to me that's a documentary and and yet the characters are completely unbelievable. Those people would never be in the astronaut office, and the laws of physics are changed. And it's just—it's—it's it's as if—it's as if you made a movie about cars, and and the person turns the wheel to the right, and the car goes to the left. Everybody would go, "Wait, that's that's wrong. That makes no sense. Why did they do that?" Because we all have that knowledge. Yeah, because you have that knowledge. Right. I'm, I I know everything on a spaceship for you know how you turn the wheel, and so when they don't make what is a common experience right then it, to me, I just can't pay attention to the story. But something like Interstellar, which is not real at all, it's just it's like 2001 A Space Odyssey. That's enough fantasy that I'm happy to just go with the whole idea. <laughs> sure. um, so most of the movies, of course, like Armageddon, it just, just makes me wince to, to watch because <laughs> it's just, you know, they took supposed real things but just turned them into cartoons. Um, so, I, I, so then I like... Um, Galaxy Quest, because to me it does a wonderful way of, of setting up. You know, every it has the reality of it, but it also makes complete fun of itself, and then it plays off Star Trek and 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 the whole uh, Comic Con kind of thing. It, it to me, I just love that movie you, at all different levels. Did you enjoy science fiction, Graham? I'm a big Star Trek Next Generation uh, fan. I started with reading science fiction, mm-hmm. and I, I read Edgar Rice Burroughs and Jules Verne, and then. Uh, uh, Arthur C. Clarke and Heinlein and, and Bradbury and you know that's fascinating to me and then when those started becoming movies or television shows Star Trek yeah. on TV or 2001 those movies were really impactful for me but they really led me into the reality of spaceflight they, they sort of set me up like these are some of the magical barely possible things that you can just imagine but actually we're leaving Earth for the first time while you're a kid the very first human beings are actually getting into rocket ships and leaving the world. That underpinning of reality uh, was was intoxicating for me as a kid. It was like, this is real, you know. This imagine if you're watching X Men and then someone with those powers goes by you on the street and you realize this isn't just fantasy. This is a, a form of reality. It's tangible, and and it it's enabling then 
it's like, wow, this is something that isn't just what I think about, you know, after I've done my normal life, this can actually become part of my normal life. This can become maybe sort of who I am. And that, to me, was a really um, alluring combination that reinforced itself and, and led to me choosing to do the things that I've done. Speaking of sort of fantastic things becoming a reality, they discovered water on Mars. There's talk of discovering the water on Mars yeah. and sort of what that means for life on other planets. Right. What are your thoughts? Do you think life on other planets exists? Does it feel like a mathematical probability to you? Uh, Have you thought about it? Oh, of course. We talk about it on the space station, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, water on Mars. We've known for a long time there was there was frozen water on Mars, mm-hmm. but we've never actually seen liquid water on Mars. So that's, boy, anywhere there's liquid water on Earth, there's life. Yep. You know, anywhere. And even though that's very salty water and it's, it's a very bizarre... Uh, set of circumstances if that's trickling down the surface what's under the surface you know and how deep do you have to go before there's water warm enough permanently liquid that maybe there's life in so that that's pretty uh imagination feeding uh one of the moons of saturn enceladus right now we just discovered it very recently it's a rock completely surrounded by water it has a global ocean, and it's cold enough that that water is encased in ice, but there's enough gravity from Saturn that it is causing water geysers spewing out of this moon Enceladus that are feeding the rings of Saturn. And we just discovered this within the last month, and that's, that's real. That, and think of that environment, all of that liquid water that's been there for millions of years broiling around and warm enough that it's squirting out uh, into space so that's another place to be looking and then the other I don't know, nail in the coffin's not the right uh, analogy, but the other real provocative thought is that our telescopes are good enough now and our scientists are good enough, we can see planets around other stars. Of course. We've seen thousands of them and and a significant percentage of them uh, could sustain life like we know it. Like they're warm enough, they're close enough to the sun, they're the right, you know, it's the Goldilocks zone, not too hot, not too cold. They're, they're, those are planets that could sustain life. And class planets on Star Trek, the next exactly generation. Right. So, but you can just then, you can just start to do the math. If we know we've seen a thousand planets and five of them are Earth like, then you can just say, okay, five out of every thousand are Earth like. And we pretty much know that stars have planets now because we, we, we can start to see them directly. We know how many galaxies there are because our telescopes are good enough. We can start, and we know how many stars there are in galaxies, so you can just run the numbers. And it seems to, the number that our best guess right now is uh, seven septillion planets, which is an, an, an unimaginably huge number, a billion, trillion, quadrillion, septillion. But if you think about it, the odds are seven septillion to one that, that there's life somewhere besides here. To think we're the only life uh, is just sort of a myopic arrogance. The other thing we don't acknowledge is is the enormity of time. The universe has been here 14 and a half billion years. Earth has only been here four and a half. You know, so there, there was nine billion years before our Earth even showed up. So I think if, if, if you have any sort of logic at all, there must have been uh, countless flows of life that has come and gone across the universe over the last 14 and a half billion years. To think that it's whizzing around in little saucer-shaped ships and, and you know, uh, uh, revealing itself to periodically, yeah, yeah. to uh, conspiracy theorists is to me is, you know, that's another form of, of myopic arrogance, of self-importance. 
and, it's, and people say, do you believe in aliens? It's not a belief system. It's either a fact or it isn't. And to me, the odds are overwhelming. And that's why we're exploring. That's why we're building spaceships. And that's why we're driving around on Mars. We're trying to answer that exact question. That's the and juicy maybe stuff. we're going to be able to answer that question on Mars, or maybe we'll be able to answer it on Enceladus or, or somewhere not too far from home. Is it is it true that we can't approach the water on Mars for risk of contaminating it from Earth? Actually, I think really far-thinking people back in the 60s and 70s made up some rules that said we should not contaminate other planets. And and if it's a dead, dry planet where, where the, there's no air and no water, like the moon, then we're not as worried about it. But if we're seeing liquid water on Mars, then uh, we, we don't want to discover life that we brought. And so we have rules. And the spaceships we sent there so far are not uh, perfectly sterilized enough that we could guarantee that maybe there's not some incredibly tough little microbe that has survived the interplanetary voyage. So uh, before we... It, it's, it's sort of like that huge sea that's under the uh, Antarctic, Lake Vostok. We didn't want to just drill right down into it to look for ancient life forms with a contaminated drill, right? It would have been self-defeating. And um, it's that same self-control uh, the rules we put up for ourselves in exploring other planets. And uh, we need to really work our way carefully. There's no big rush, and we don't want to get it wrong. So uh, I, I, I think one discovery will leapfrog how we're going to interpret it, the next ship we're going to do, how we're going to do that, so that, so that we can actually make honest discoveries about life in the universe. One last question here. I mean, you're an astronaut. You're a, a hero to a lot of people. Who's your hero or heroes? When I was a kid, my heroes were imaginary. They were like uh, Tarzan. You know, I read Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan. I thought Tarzan was really cool. Or, or Captain Nemo, or um, James T. Kirk. You know, those fictional characters. Fictional yeah. characters, imaginary characters. They were my heroes. And then, as I got a little older, I realized that people were actually doing some of those things. And so, uh, John Glenn and. and uh, Yuri Gagarin and Alexei Leonov, the first spacewalker, and then of course Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, they, they were my heroes. Um, and to some degree they still are, I have great respect for those people. But uh, as I get a little older, uh, I discovered that every single person you ever meet has done something heroic. Everybody. They've done something brave. They've done something that re re required a huge self-sacrifice. They've done something altruistic for somebody else. And, and the, to me, the real interesting thing is to talk to somebody long enough to find out the heroic things that they've done. And it, to me, it's a constant source of inspiration, is to sit down next to somebody and find out, you know, everybody just looks like another person until you find out some of the amazing individual stories of what people have done. And, and so I don't know if that's raised my bar of heroism or lowered it, but I think it's made it more real. And, and I think it, uh, it becomes much more motivational to me to see the heroism that's around me all the time. Thank you very much, sir. Thank Appreciate you. your time. Thanks. Nice to talk with you. All right. This is the part of the episode that we call the dessert. And now I just got to say a little something, something. What we said last week is we told you guys we were going to talk about It Follows. Uh, so Shane, Max, and myself, Shane's here, by the way. Shane, you can say hello. Hi. Uh, we all talked about the film It, it Follows. After that was recorded, disaster struck, uh, we had some technical glitches and we lost all of the audio data from Shane and Max's mics. I didn't realize this until after Max had left for Europe. Shane had gone back to his apartment. It's true. Uh, 
Yeah, that one it particularly really sucks because like I usually don't message you after we do one. Yeah. But I was feeling really good. I thought it was one of the best ones. So I was like, oh, Mikey, this is going to be a good one. And then the next day you sent, what was the subject heading of the email? nightmare yeah <laughs> my heart starts racing like crazy i'm like oh no what's gone wrong i had a feeling it was pod related though yeah. luckily so i was crushed because it was a good it was a good one anyway here's the deal guys uh we're going to do it follows when max is back from europe this week though we're going to talk about the movie the thing john carpenter's mm-hmm. the thing because halloween just passed and we thought we'd do a horror movie to stick with the theme but before that shane how have you been um well you you probably noticed that i kind of look a little shittier today like Face fat. I don't know. I feel ugly right now because... Uh, I, I've noticed that you shaved your mustache and a bit of your five o'clock shadow, but I don't think you look bad. Oh, thank you. You're the only person who's said that, actually, because even Alex was like, whoa, she's like, if you look like that our first date, I, I, w- I wouldn't go out with you. <laughs> <laughs> she told me that. Is that serious? Yeah. Alex, oh. my girlfriend. Um, so, And then Popolis walked in, the guy I went to see Magic Mike with all those many uh, podcast episodes ago. He was like, whoa, he's like, you look... Uh, different <laughs> so everyone's acting like i'm so gross uh so i can't wait for that to grow in but the reason i shaved my face it was for a halloween party oh yes okay so for context everybody halloween just happened we're recording this on a monday halloween was this past weekend so everybody went to halloween parties i did not but shane i saw your photos on instagram you did yeah like every year on halloween i have a little tradition because i'm very lazy and i hate costumes i hate dressing up but I, I typically, I cut out a piece of paper, I write, my name is Bill Gates, and I wear glasses, and I go around as Bill Gates, obviously. But this year, I'm in a new relationship, and I'm trying to be festive and join in on the party. And, and to be honest, I was kind of excited about my costume. So I spent $75 mm-hmm. to get my face painted like Owen Wilson in the movie Royal Tenenbaums. Now, a lot of people are probably like, Owen Wilson wasn't wearing face paint in the Royal Tenenbaums, but he was at the end. Uh, just very few people remember uh, when he's, he's all drugged out, he's on mescaline, he, he drives a car. He's flying fa- down the road in the his car. His face is covered in kind of like a, like a Native American style uh, face paint. Right. So they pay 75 bucks, take a bit of a bath. It seems a little overpriced for what I got. Whatever, I'm happy it looks You like went to a professional to do this paint. Went to a professional to do, do the paint. So I'm feeling pretty good for about five minutes until uh, someone walks by me, like a group of girls are like, oh, trying to be Johnny Depp. And I was like, what the f-? Oh, like, shit. I'm like, because people usually say that because I have like a shitty mustache like Johnny Depp has. So that when I'm not wearing face paint. So I'm like, oh, I just shaved my mustache. It's weird. You'd think I look nothing like Johnny Depp. But you know what? I realized it the minute you said yeah. it. Uh, Tonto. Yeah. From the Lone Ranger. So I'm like, fuck. <laughs> I'm pissed and I'm embarrassed because I don't, I hate the Johnny Depp stuff. So then I get on the train, a couple more people. So I'm like, I got to get my ha- cowboy hat on and my jacket and really look like it. And um, what's her name? Alex. She dressed like Margot. So she kind of completes my outfit. So she dressed like Gwyneth Paltrow's character. Yep. And she has naturally blonde hair. So she looked identical to it. Walk in the party. Feeling great, feeling really good about my costume. People are starting to recognize me and they think it's all because most people go as Richie and Margot if they're going to be Royal. The Tenenbaum. tennis player, uh, Luke Wilson with the headband in Royal right. Tenenbaums. Yeah. I'm the biggest Owen Wilson fan, so I feel like I'm getting a little respect for not only my dedication to the character, but the creativeness of going for someone else who f- 
to Gwyneth Paltrow in that movie. Because <laughs> a lot of people forget, too. And they were kind of like the passionate relationship. Or like the sneakier one. You went really deep on this. So if someone was a fan of the Royal Tannenbaums, they would have respected that you went that deep. And also that it was a pretty obscure character or an obscure scene in the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's an uh, obscure coupling that a lot of people don't think about because Richie, everyone thinks about Richie. The famous tent scene. Yes, exactly. So show up to the party. Uh, we have this uh, friend that, you know, every so often when he comes out, he refers to himself as the nut. This is his, his, his uh, drunk alter ego. When he gets so annihilated that he blacks out and does seemingly terrible things, that character is called the nut. And we have a, uh, I guess it's like kind of like a message board Facebook group or whatever yeah. that all of our friends talk in. And he said, the nut's coming out tonight. <laughs> now, this, this guy, when he's not the nut, he's pretty nice and he, he likes me and he's very complimentary. He'll often say, oh, you're the best looking guy, whatever. He clearly hasn't seen you with the shaved mustache. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he... When he's the nut, he absolutely f-ing despises me for some reason. So I walk in and the nut walks up to me and I'm immediately a little tense. But he's like, that podcast changed my life. Which one? He's the David Arquette po- podcast. Oh, our last episode. So I'm like, oh, uh, tell me more. This is a, wow, that's, that's awesome. Um, he's like, yeah, I, I love the David Arquette thing. But he's like, what Max said about him being uh, narcissistic and acknowledging that he's narcissistic. It really made me think about my own life and kind of owning up to the things I don't like about myself. The nut is pretty introspective. Yeah, he, he wasn't in full nut mode, but he actually, he said, I'm actually uh, retiring the nut. I'm not going to be the nut anymore. I hate that guy and I hate what it, what it makes me and why be that guy? <laughs> so I'm like, okay. I'm like, good. Like, cause the nut usually harasses me all night. <laughs> So I'm like, okay, I can, I can loosen up a little bit, have a couple of drinks. And then the guy, uh, formerly known as the nut comes up and he's like, Hey, let's have a rap battle. Uh, I used to be in a, uh, a rap group, by the way. Yeah. Shane used to rap in a, uh, yeah. like sort of a fun kind of pre lonely Island rap group with like funny comical lyrics sort of mm-hmm. thing when we were all a lot younger. Yeah. So, uh, and he wants a rap battle and I'm like, I'm like, I I won't do that with you because you're going to get very upset. You're going to go crazy. You're going to be the nut. Anyways, he starts in on Alex saying how he's going to uh, like her and he whacks off to her like in a rap. It was a rap. So So in a rap battle, like like Eminem in eight mile, he starts saying how he what he's going to do to your girlfriend. Yeah. He's like the girl on the couch. Shane won't rap it. When I get home with her, I'm going to whack it. Something like that. It was some it was better than that. So he's like a lyrical genius. (laughs) Yeah. With a small penis. and He does have a small one. So that worked perfectly. (laughs) Thank you, Mike. (laughs) But so I'm like, that's my woman you're insulting. So I'm like, start the beat. And then. (laughs) And then I, I decimate him and like, I'm pretty proud. And Alex is like, Whoa, I'm impressed. And, but then I see like the, his eyes like dimming and him turning, he's about to turn into the nut. So he fills a Tupperware container filled with gin and water and just drinks it all. Oh no. And he keeps doing that. So I'm like, "Uh Oh, what's going to happen here? And then I'm having a drink and about an hour later, it's, a glass like it's 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 a glass drink i'm drinking it where it's a house party right so he grabs my glass drink out of my hand and throws it as hard as he can against the wall thus shattering my drink 
into pieces. And by the way, this is Max's home that we're having this party at. <laughs> Max, Max is away. You guys are throwing a massive Halloween party at his at house. Producer Max Kerman, lead singer of the Arkells house. Uh, your brother who also lives there yeah. is not there. No, he was in Ireland. So basically it's, we're having a house party when like 90% of the people who occupy the house aren't there and we're <laughs> destroying it. <laughs> so the nut was out in full force and it was terrifying. And uh, the next day, we had to pick a lot of glass shards out of our feet and like clean the house. Basically. Do you take some responsibility? I feel like your rap is what turned him into the nut potentially. Well, he insulted my woman. That's right. And I, you know, I, I'd yeah. be humiliated what are you if I be, just took that. What are you going to be meek mill and not e- respond? Exactly. You had to go back to back. Exactly. Uh, and I was Drake and he was meek mill. Yes. So, but so that was a bit of a victory and a loss all in the same breath. Is that it yeah. Shane? Or do you want to add some more? All I have written down is that I didn't mention it's not a huge thing. I had sex in Greg's bed at his place. <laughs> that was it. But I don't know why I wrote that. Yeah. I got a little notepad. Sure. Have you told my brother this yet? No. He's, he was very upset that he, because he had face paint all in his sheets. Ooh. And Greg's like, I hate when somebody's in my bed. He's like, was it you? It's like, there's paint. And I was like, yeah. I was like, but we made the bed afterwards. We just passed out. So I didn't tell him that part. I felt very guilty. Yeah. Oh, I know my brother. He's going to be particular about that. But yeah, good weekend all around. I saw the movie The Thing. <laughs> the Thing. Uh, yeah. This is a uh, horror classic. John Carpenter's The Thing. Mm-hmm. Eight out of ten. For The Thing. No, The Sex. <laughs> <laughs> the Thing's a perfect ten, baby. <laughs> that's it, and that's all. That is our episode. Uh, thank you for listening. Please uh, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes if you haven't already. All the artwork for the Michael Much podcast is done by Jenna Gregory from jennasdoodles.com. You can follow us at Mike on Much on Twitter and Instagram. The Michael Much podcast is produced by Max Kerman, and I am your host, Mike Veerman. I'm still here with Shane Cunningham. Yeah. yeah. See you next week. If we don't die on the, the weekend. weekend. Nailed it. <laughs> Perfect.